Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. When I graduated from high school and first went to college, one of the weirdest things for me was the dormitory. It wasn't the classes, nor the weird cafeteria food, or the daily schedule, or even a different town. I just went to Portland so I can always scamper back home if I needed real food and clean clothes. The thing that was strange was that in a dorm, you essentially move into a small room with a stranger. And it's not that they're a stranger and that you've never met them before, though that is true. They could just be strange. They could be a different age, or from a different part of the country, or from a different country altogether even. And then, of course, their personality could just be odd. But what is the weirdest thing is that you quickly discover that the way that you grew up doing things could be drastically different than the way that they did. While you've both been on the planet for about two decades, those years likely had different expectations for how you were supposed to live. And so perhaps for the first time, you discover that people consider you different. And it could be simple things too. Like, they thought it was completely normal to pile their dirty laundry beneath their bed until it smelled as bad as toadstool sounds. And that is a true story. It could be that their sleep schedule is several hours different than yours, and their choice in music happens to be country, which you're not really a fan of, but they also don't believe in headphones, and so you have to listen to it all the time. Uh, it could be that they are diehard Dallas Cowboy fans, and they want to keep you up until 3 a.m. every night talking about Tony Romo, but you got a 7 a.m. class and you hate the Cowboys. Right? Could be. Differences like that. And sometimes, and when you're an 18, 19-year-old discovering this for the first time, usually this leads to some kind of conflict. Um, or if you're kind of shy and passive-aggressive, like Teenage Sky was, it means you just bottle up and are really crazy for a year, and then you opt out as soon as you can. However, if it gets bad enough, and those differences continue to mount, that small room that you are forced to call home can start to feel like a place where you do not belong. And that's just talking about moving into a dorm as a teenager. But what if the places that we have called home don't actually feel like home? What if we find that we are the stranger and that us being different is not just an annoyance, but it's actually considered to be a threat to the way of life for everyone who lives there? Now, for the last few months, we've been in a series called Everyday People, where we've been looking at what it means to follow Jesus every day through the book of First Peter. And for the, Peter, or for the people that Peter is writing to, following Jesus has not been easy, to say the least. Because the differences between the way of Jesus and the way of Rome has brought suffering upon the church. They're despised, they're mocked, they're persecuted, and the places that they have called home are no longer places of, or of safety or security. And so at the beginning of the letter, Peter wants to assure these suffering Christians that the suffering they are facing in that time was not a sign of God's disappointment or his abandonment. That instead, it shows that they are actually following in the footsteps of Jesus. Because having been saved through Jesus, they, these non-Jewish Christians are now brought into the heritage of God's people. And like their spiritual forebears, they too face suffering, exile, and dishonor for the sake of God. And so for much of, or so much of Peter's focus 
is on how the people of God, who have such a great calling, should live in a society that demeans them and sees Jesus not just as a threat to their own religions, but to their very way of life. Now, for Peter, the image of a foreigner and an exile is his go-to to describe the Christian life. And he begins by developing what this means in chapter 2. So this is verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so with that principle, Peter then goes into what it means to act like Jesus with the various authorities that Christians find themselves under in Roman society. And over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Josh has looked at what it means for how Christians engage or submit to governing authorities and how we are supposed to engage in politics. But now, Peter is going to transition from the impersonal sphere of government and society to the very personal spaces where Christians have questions about how to follow Jesus when persecution doesn't happen just in society at large, but actually happens in their own homes. How do we follow Jesus when foreigner and exile isn't something that we feel just out in the community or in our workplaces, but even in our most personal spaces and in our closest relationships? And so today, we're going to be in parts of 1 Peter 2 and 3, and we have a challenge ahead of us. Because the passages that we are going to be examining this morning have been used to perpetuate all sorts of evil and abuse whether it was justifying slavery or the physical, emotional, and spiritual demeaning of women and the most disadvantaged in society. And so I want to be extra careful and I want to be very, very clear about what Peter is and is not talking about. And so up front, right now, and please hear me because what I say now is still going to be true in 20 minutes. Peter is never advocating for slavery Neither is he saying that women are supposed to stay in abusive relationships. Broken people can make the Bible say anything they want. And sometimes it feels so hopeless to try to overcome the evil that people have done with the Bible in Jesus' name. But simply ignoring parts of the Bible isn't going to help us. That we need to try to read it as it is meant to be understood. And yes, at times it can be a long and exhausting journey, but I think ultimately it's going to be rewarding and freeing at the same time. So Peter is addressing Christians living within the strict authority structures of a ruthless, oppressive, and pagan empire in the first century. And he's trying to teach them on how to counter the evil and hate that they cannot escape because society has denied them the rights and moral freedoms to do so. Now, one of the biggest differences that Christians face today when encountering abuse and persecution, whether at home or in society, is that we do have laws and means to protect victims and punish abusers. But for the Christians that Peter is trying to counsel, they had no escape and they had no hopes of change, at least not immediately. And so again, people have misused this teaching to justify slavery, abuse of the poor, and the shaming of victims of domestic abuse. But again, please hear me. Peter is not saying these things. So, before we try to wrestle with what Peter is saying, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. Um, 
as difficult as it is for us to try and understand it, would you remind us of your goodness? Would you help us to recognize what is true? Would you uh, speak through me this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so when we read an ancient letter like 1 Peter, we do need to understand a bit about the world that it is written in. So remember, the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And in this specific case, Peter is writing to displaced Gentiles who are suffering persecution by the larger pagan Roman society of the first century. And so Peter is going to talk about what it means to submit to authority within the household. And if we're going to try and understand what he's talking about, we need to first understand what is the Roman household that Christians were forced to live in at the time. Because the structures of authority then are different than what we expect here in America. Now, today, we tend to think that how families operate is a private matter, especially in the United States. But for the people of Peter's day, how a family operated and behaved was a matter for the whole community. Because there is this strong belief that the family was supposed to be the picture of the entire Roman society. And Greek and Roman philosophers wrote oodles and oodles about how a family was supposed to be properly structured and ordered, and this structure could not be questioned within the society. In fact, so strong was this belief in the structure of the Roman family that when conquered peoples were assimilated into the empire, one of the biggest qualifiers was whether this new people group would still maintain the Roman family structure. No joke, it was that important. And religions were also evaluated in the same way. And so first century Judaism, even though it believed in only a single God and not in the many gods of Rome, it was still tolerated because it fit relatively well within the Roman structure. But in contrast, you have something like the Egyptian cult of Isis, which was despised because they allowed women to have or to have authority over their husbands. And in doing so, Rome saw it as breaking down society. And so, what was a good Roman household supposed to look like? Well, according to the heavyweight philosophers of the age, it all connected back to the man, who was the master of all in the household. And a household typically consisted of four groups. You had the slaves, the children, the wives, and then, of course, the husband. And as we go through 1 Peter 2 and 3, he's going to hit each of these groups, but not the children, because we'll get there. And so it was the, the master's duty to hold and exercise authority over everyone who is part of this family. And it was also his duty to instruct them on the proper conduct within the house and within society at large. Now, what's interesting is that within these household codes, slaves, children, and wives were never directly addressed, ever. Because none of them were seen as having the moral freedom or responsibility within society, primarily because, for various reasons, each wasn't capable of making those choices. That was the master's privilege. However, both house slaves and wives were often given authority under the man over different aspects of running the home. And so while the husband might run the business, the wife would still have a lot of responsibilities in the day-to-day -day aspects of the house. So they, she would manage its slaves, take care of the children, and make sure everything ran properly. However, if an issue did arise from the conduct of a slave or wife, it was the husband who was blamed for not properly instructing them or the people in his house. And he was expected and pressured by society to get his house in proper order 
whatever necessary. So essentially, for the Roman household, in one sentence, slaves, wives, and children were to submit to the master, father, husband, completely in everything. And whatever authority they might have had, it was always ever only under his. Now, while physical abuse wasn't necessarily looked favorably upon by the Romans, it was still tolerated by society and even seen as necessary to establish the man's authority, especially with his slaves, for whom culture said there could be no unjust suffering. Okay, so this is the situation that Peter is writing to. He's established the new identity that believers have as children the Father loves, who have been saved through the suffering of his Son and have been made holy through his Spirit. And it's this new identity that now is supposed to drive the way they live and suffer in not just a world, but also in a home that stands against God. So, Peter is not interested in this letter with trying to change the authority structures of his time. His main intent is trying to help persecuted believers follow Jesus and the culture that they find themselves in so that Jesus would be known, loved, and honored. Now, again, this is from last week, but this is how Peter is going to transition from talking about society at large to following Jesus within the household. This is 1 Peter 2, 16 and 17. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, before we dive into what the household is, or how a Christian operates in this household, there's a couple things that we need to hold on to. First, Peter is concerned about living amongst the pagans, right? people who do not know or follow Jesus. So he is not talking about what a proper Christian family should do. It's about being a foreigner and exile in your own home and trying to help the people in the house know Jesus through the way that you behave. Second, the context is one of suffering. Right? How do you follow Jesus when you are being persecuted for him even by the members of your household? And then third, Peter still affirms that all believers are free no matter what station they find themselves in. But that freedom does not mean that you are your own master, that you first and foremost belong to God and you serve and obey him. All right, so with that, Peter is now going to address the lowliest people, not just in society, but also in the home, and these were the slaves. This is 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. It says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. It's estimated that about one-fourth of the population of the Roman Empire was slaves. And there were a couple different types of slaves, those who worked in the mines or in the fields. But the slaves that Peter is specifically addressing are those who are a part of the Roman household. And house slaves were generally treated well, and they could have higher standing within society, 
even being educated. And so they would serve as tutors of the children, or they'd even manage the accounts and finances for the business. And if they're able to get work on the side, they could possibly purchase their freedom. However, they were still a slave, and within the household and in society, they had no rights, which, interestingly enough, also included their faith, because slaves were expected to worship the gods of their masters. And so here is the situation that Peter is addressing. You are a slave in the first century to a pagan family. At some point, however, you hear of Jesus and you abandon the old gods, you get baptized as a Christian. But then your master finds out. And he commands you to worship the old gods as you should. You are a disruption to his household now. You're challenging his authority. And you're bringing shame and disrespect upon the family within the community. And so he threatens to hurt you for following Jesus. And in this specific situation, what do you do? Now, we are not going to like the answer because Peter's response is essentially this. If it's a choice between following Jesus or, sorry, following a Jesus and taking a beating and not following, a Jesus, following Jesus, then you take the beating. That you still submit to your master, that you still respect him no matter his behavior. And if he chooses to beat you for Jesus, then you take it. Now, again, we have to be clear about this situation. Because Peter is not saying that slavery is a good thing. He's talking about the reality of following Jesus in a house where you are considered the property of your master and you cannot leave and you cannot change it. You have absolutely no power in this situation. And so for the sake of Jesus, you submit even to the beating. Because if you take the path of violence instead, if you take the path of returning evil for evil, you not only ignore the teachings of Jesus, but you bring worse persecution upon the church as a whole from a culture that already considers you a threat to the entire Roman way of life. Now, Peter is trying to be an apologist here. He's trying to defend Christianity to Roman society. And remember, this whole section begins with this, this command, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so how do you do good as a slave in this situation? Well, by, still, by taking this beating for following Jesus and still continuing to respect your master, you're demonstrating that Christianity is not worthy of the hatred against it and whatever suffering you are, you are facing is actually unjust. But what's interesting here is that while Peter is still upholding the authority of the master at that time, he's also subtly subverting the household codes. Though we're going to find it much less subtle when he actually addresses the husbands in the household. Here, though, Peter is going to do it in two ways. First, Peter actually addresses slaves directly. Because remember, when Greek and Roman philosophers talked about family, they addressed only the man of the house. And so by addressing the slaves, Peter is saying that they too actually bear moral responsibility and choice, something that society has denied to them. And second, Peter actually says their suffering can be unjust, which society would disagree with meaning that they actually have dignity and rights that the society is taking from them, that they are not the property of their masters. And in fact, Peter is going to argue that when they suffer unjustly, they are granted a greater dignity than thought possible because slaves are to be the pattern for every single follower of Jesus. 
continuing on in verse 21. He says, to this you were called, and by this he refers to enduring unjust suffering. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults against him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so Peter says that we are called to suffer unjustly because Jesus suffered unjustly and died a slave's death for us. And that his suffering is an example for us to follow. However, it's a little stronger than just being an example. The Greek word that is translated here as example actually refers to the pattern of letters that children would trace out when they're learning to write. And so Jesus' unjust suffering for good isn't just this example we try to loosely follow. It's what his followers are to trace out in their own lives. It is what we are supposed to make the closest of copies of. And to show this, Peter then works through perhaps the most famous Old Testament passage about the Messiah, Isaiah 52 and 53 where it talks about God's servant who was innocent but still suffered. And though insulted, did not retaliate and offered no threats, but whose suffering actually brought healing to those who were lost and astray. And of course, we see this play out, especially through Jesus' trial and his execution. And so if Christians are going to point the pagan members of their household to Jesus, then they must follow in his footsteps so that they might be true copies of him. And that no matter what station a Christian holds in the household, the slave who endures unjust suffering becomes the model for them all. Now, having established this lens for us to read through, Peter is now going to move to the next group that's most disadvantaged in the Roman home, and that is the wives. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. It says, wives, in the same way, Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay. So again, we need to be clear on the situation that Peter is talking about. You are a woman married to a pagan husband in the first century. At some point, you attend a meeting, you have a chat with a friend, you learn about Jesus, and you decide to become his disciple. And then your husband finds out. And he is not pleased with this. Because it is one thing for his slaves to abandon his gods. It is quite another for his wife to do so. Because what are people going to think? Is he going to be seen as weak by the other families in the community? Are people going to mock him for not having control over his own household? And more than that, you're now building relationships with other believers. This thing called the church. 
And for a wife to have a different circle of friends than her husband was unheard of in that time. Right? According to the household codes, a woman was only to befriend her husband's friends. And so now perhaps accusations are flowing freely. And so the husband demands that you abandon Jesus and worship the old gods as you are supposed to do. Now, like the slave, you do not really have a way out because the Roman way of life completely, fully backs up your husband. And when he commands, you are expected to obey and your family is going to tell you so as long with the entirety of the community. For the benefit of society, he needs to keep you in line, and so maybe he threatens you to stop following Jesus. In this specific situation, how do you follow Jesus? Again, like with slavery, Peter is not going to tackle the broken or the broken authority structures of the Roman household. Though again, he shocks it when he talks to husbands. So how does a wife follow Jesus in a way that upholds her dignity as a free child of God who is trapped within the oppressive system of a Roman household. And he starts by saying, in the same way. Well, Peter, what do you mean in the same way? If we go back to his advice to the slaves, it's this, submit and reverent fear of God. As with the slave, it means continuing to respect the authority that Roman society has placed upon the husband and behaving in such a way that you honor and reflect the character of Jesus. And Peter cautions that this does not mean using your body or sexuality to manipulate your husband because you are not a toy to distract his anger. Instead, you reveal Jesus through what he says is the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, so please hear me. Peter is not talking about a woman's personality. He's not talking about a woman's personality. And broken men over centuries have used this to elevate themselves and demean their wives. What Peter is talking about is how you endure unjust suffering. And Peter has just finished describing what it looks like to have a gentle and quiet spirit when persecuted. He has just gone through Isaiah 53 and described Jesus' own journey. And so what it means is that when you face insults and threats, you don't blow up. You don't retaliate, you don't insult. You trust in the Father just like Jesus did. That's not how only you bear inescapable persecution in this situation. It's also how the slave is to, supposed to respond. And it's all because that is how Jesus suffered. It's not about personality, but how you endure persecution. Jesus had the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit as he unjustly bore the cross for us. And then, by continuing to respect your husband, Peter says that you follow not the idealized Roman woman, but you continue in the heritage of God's people through Sarah. That you place yourself under the hope and the teachings of the prophets that have guided God's people, not the Roman poets and philosophers. And side note, Sarah calling Abraham her husband Lord just means that she showed him respect. There's not really a modern equivalent for it today. It's like sir or a very, very formal version of dear. Right? He's, she's not saying master, overlord, king of the house, etc. It's just an example of how women demonstrated respect in that time. But this last statement that Peter makes helps further underline this. Because as with Christians in the larger society, 
It's about pursuing good and not giving in to fear despite suffering for Jesus. And it is this that defines the people of God amidst an oppressive culture, just as Jesus demonstrated. And so now, Peter is going to address the last adult in the Roman household. And it's going to be the husbands. And while he says only a sentence to them, he implies a lot. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, as with slaves and wives, we need to understand Peter's instructions in light of the context of suffering and persecution. And so here's the situation he's talking about. You are a husband who has forsaken the old gods and you have trusted in Jesus. However, the rest of your household continues to be pagan, particularly your wife. And by following Jesus, you've put her in an uncomfortable situation. Because according to the Roman way, she is supposed to worship the gods that you do. And at the same time, following Jesus means that the family has lost standing and respect in the community, and she experiences that too. Perhaps she too is being mocked and insulted, and you know what? She naturally resents that. And so maybe she begins to resent you. And she pushes back on your decision to be a Christian. Maybe even mocks you for looking weak following this weak God. And that brings more shame and frustration upon you in the house and also in your community. And so how do you follow Jesus in this situation? Now, this is a very different situation than the slave and the wife was facing because you actually have all the power. She is the weaker vessel and that you are likely physically stronger than her. And should you use force against her, she has no recourse. Exercising your power would certainly be the Roman way. And society would back you up in doing it. However, it is definitely not the way of Jesus. Again, Peter says, in the same way, right? In reverent fear of God, in the same way that Jesus bore unjust suffering as a servant, in the same way that slaves and wives are supposed to respond to persecution. So despite being told by society that you have all the power and authority to bring your household into line, however necessary, Peter says no. That you respect your wife despite her resentment of your faith, And then interestingly, Peter's advice is to treat her as an equal heir of God's grace. Now, reading it in English, it looks like Peter is talking about a Christian couple. But given the context and the weird grammar of the Greek, it does seem like Peter's instructions here for how to truly bring her to Christ is to respect her and treat her as an equal heir and Christian. And in that way, in the contrast between what Roman society would have you do, and the good that you are doing because you follow Jesus, you demonstrate the better way of Jesus. And so try to imagine the church gathering when 1 Peter is first read. As a man listens, you should picture his eyes getting wider and wider and sweat starting to glisten on his forehead. Because what Peter has just been telling slaves and wives is unheard of. That their suffering can be unjust, that they have more responsibility to Jesus and not to you most of all. And then Peter says that you two are to respect your wife and that she's actually equal with you before God. And then it gets worse because Peter says that if you are tempted to use your physical strength against her, 
If you use your social power to bend her, God will not listen to you. That as holy as you appear in the rest of your life, God is going to cut off communication. And this is the strongest Peter comes to challenging the Roman household codes. Because even though society has given the husband authority, the man is still God's slave. And with reverent fear, he too is to pursue good despite suffering, following the example of Jesus with a gentle and quiet spirit and upholding the dignity and equality that everyone has before God within his household. And that is Christians living through a Roman household in the first century. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Why bother examining topics and situations that are frankly uncomfortable? To say it again, this passage has been used to perpetuate terrible evils throughout history. It has been used to shame women into staying in abusive marriages. It's been used to justify the enslavement of people groups and the oppression of the disadvantaged in society. But those things deny the way of Jesus and they have no place in his church, period. Peter is trying to help oppressed and persecuted Christians understand how to follow Jesus as foreigners and exiles within the Roman household of the first century. Remember, the Bible was not written to us, but it is written for us. And so here are a few ways that I think 1 Peter and these passages are still for us today. First, even though we do not understand the authority structures that these Christians faced, many Christians throughout the world still find themselves in similar danger. That in many countries, it is still dangerous for a wife to follow Jesus when the family holds a different religion. And like the wives of the first century, they find themselves beneath an oppressive culture that upholds the right of her husband to treat her as he wants. And we can be thankful that our society is different and expects differently. But we need to recognize that many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world still live in this type of culture. And we should be desperately praying for them. Second, over and over again, Peter tells us that suffering and persecution is normal for a Christian. And it's normal because Jesus suffered unjustly for us that we should not be surprised when suffering can come even in our houses. And because suffering is normal, Christians need to know how to endure suffering in a way that honors Jesus and still draws people to him. And this holds true throughout all centuries and all circumstances. As Jesus, his followers are to be innocent in their conduct, that when insulted, we do not retaliate. When we are suffering, we do not threaten and we trust in the Father who will one day right all wrongs. That does not mean that we seek out suffering or that we keep suffering if there is a faithful way out that does not deny faith in Jesus. But when suffering is unavoidable, that is how we are supposed to face it. And if we need to set boundaries, if we need to have separation within a relationship, we do so with the character of Christ, not through the broken ways of this I think lastly, in the way that this passage is for us, is that as we look at the cost that our ancient brothers and sisters had to pay, and as we look at the cost that even brothers and sisters throughout this world are paying right now, we have to consider, are we too willing to pay the cost of following Jesus if it means enduring unjust 
suffering. Even after thousands of years, we still have this misguided belief that following Jesus is supposed to be easy. That suffering must mean that God has abandoned us or maybe he does not even exist. And for Christians in the first century, following Jesus was incredibly costly because it meant being a stranger in your own home. It meant suffering and persecution by your family or spouse and you had no power. But for all of us, Though we are people freed by the grace of God, we are first and foremost God's slaves. That we do not belong to ourselves because Jesus bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That no matter what position or what relationship we're in that causes suffering, we still follow this mantra set out by Peter. Respect all, love your Christian brothers and sisters, fear God, and respect the governing authorities. But by doing this, we're going to find out that we are actually battling the broken systems of this world. And in fact, it's the way that our ancient brothers and sisters of the first several centuries ultimately defeated the persecution by Rome. Today, we're going to be taking communion. Now, as Peter describes the way of Jesus amidst suffering, he keeps quoting from Isaiah 52 and 53, which is known as the Song of the Suffering Servant. And so before we go and receive the elements today, I want to read through the entirety of this song. And I want us to reflect on what it means to trace out the way of Jesus in our own lives. This is Isaiah 52, 53. says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up, raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he startle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life 
and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We're going to take communion a little differently today, and that we're going to have a couple tables in the back. Um, and so when you are ready, if you'll just go up and back down your aisle um, to either Brad or Pastor Josh, um, and then hold on to the elements as we'll take them together in a few minutes. So communion is in the back when you're ready. Go ahead and grab it. And then as you do so, reflect on what it means to trace out the way of Jesus in your own life. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let's end our time together by responding in worship. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.